Father, we are thankful for your word, which speaks to every part of our life and how sufficient it is for the man of God to be equipped for every good work. We pray this morning as we think about what a church is, what it's to be about. Help us to have faith to believe what you say is true and help us to know how to put that into practice. Make us into people that hold up and hold out the very gospel itself. In Jesus' name, amen. Where churches have become temples of cheese and fitness. That's the title of a New York Times article by a man named Dan Bailevsky. It's talking about that very interesting phenomenon of churches in Quebec. Turns out in the 1950s, Quebec was quite a religious place. So the tune of 95% of residents being at church any given Sunday, most of them Roman Catholic. These days, things are a little different, though. Instead of 95% of people going to church, now that it, the number is 5%. That drop in demand for people attending churches has left a glut in the church real estate market. And entrepreneurs have been happy to take advantage of the opportunity. They've been buying up old church buildings and converting them to other businesses at a rapid rate. So far, 570-odd churches have been converted. There have been everything from theaters to gyms to spas to, yes, even cheeseries. One man who uh, is a patron of one of the gyms said that he thinks his grandmother would be glad he's spending time in church even if she probably wishes he was working on his soul instead of his biceps. Now, it's a sobering thing to see the decline of a, the witness of Christianity in a whole place like Quebec. Now, I don't think we should read too much into church buildings being converted. Uh, Jesus' concern seemed to be that there would be a people that worship in spirit and truth, not so much where it is they worship. As wonderful as our building is, as much as I like worshiping here, I don't think the building is what we're supposed to focus on. And yet it's a sobering reality that churches would be closing their doors at such a rapid rate. Even more instructive, though, is what people think churches are about in an area where Christianity is declining like this. One of the entrepreneurs was interviewed in the, uh, as part of the article, and he said this about his space that he bought. He said, I don't feel any taboo in transforming a church into a theater, as we're remaining true to the church's mission of serving the community. Well, that's interesting. Serving the community is the mission of the church. That's a, according to this guy. Unless we think only a post-Christian environment might think something like that. Uh, I was in a very heavily churched area, Wheaton, Illinois, and I, I sat down with a, another pastor, and uh, he wanted to know about a program I was running for the church I was at, and as we sat down, it became obvious we were thinking of church very differently. He asked what our program was about. I explained we were trying to reach our neighbors with the gospel, that we were making sure our coaches were trained how to share the gospel, and that everything we did was toward that end. And I asked him, what are you guys about? And he said, well, we're about bringing people together. I said, well, what would that look like? He said, well, what I'm thinking of is like we could get some, some Jewish kids and some Muslim kids, and we could get them to play basketball together, and, and that would accomplish our goal. Very different understanding. What is the church? Maybe even some of us in the pews this morning, certainly some gathered in churches all around the city, 
the question of what is the church supposed to be about? Is it, is it just a place you come, kind of like a gym membership where you, you come to get a certain flavor of spiritual experience and as long as it has some sort of value to you, you stay committed, but the second it stops, well, you shop for a new one? Well, to answer these sorts of questions and many others, the book of 1 Timothy was written. If there's one book in the whole Bible that's written to answer the question, what is a church and what's it supposed to be about, it's 1 Timothy. It's written by the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy, that it was sent to stabilize a struggling church in Ephesus. And along the way, Paul explains what a Christian church is supposed to be about and what it is in the first place. Now, if 1 Timothy is the part of the Bible that speaks most directly to what a church is and what it's supposed to be about, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16 is the heart of the whole letter itself. It's the main idea of the book. So this morning, we had better pay close attention if we're to know how to think of ourselves as a church as College Park Castleton, who we are and what we are supposed to be about. We'll explore that in, in two sections. 14 through the first half of 15, we'll ask, what's a true church? And we'll see the answer. It's, it's God's family gathered for worship. It's God's family gathered for worship. And then in the second half of 15 through 16, we'll, we'll ans ask the question, what's the church just supposed to be about? And the answer will be holding up and holding out the gospel. Holding up and holding out the gospel. Let's begin by looking in verse 14. What's a true church? What's the church supposed to be? It's God's family gathered for worship. Paul starts in verse 14 explaining to Timothy that he's probably not going to make it to the meeting that they had set up. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. We, we don't know precisely why Paul knew was going to be delayed, but it's obvious from the way he wrote that that he expects that he's not going to make it as he and Timothy had worked out ahead of time. So it's with his great importance, he wants Timothy to understand what the church is and what it's supposed to be about. He uses two images first to describe what the church is. The first is a family, and the second is an assembly. That first image of a family is right there in that phrase, household, how one ought to behave in the household of God. The Greek word behind that word translated as household is oikos. It can be used to describe a structure, like a, a house you would live in, a physical building. It can also be used to describe the people that live in that building as a family unit. You might say a family or a household. Now, now both of those uses would have had roots in the Old Testament. Both of them are consistent with the way God has spoken about his people and about how they worship. Back in the Old Testament, if you were to ask, where does God live? The people of God would have said, in the temple. There's lots of scriptures we could go to. Psalm 27 is a nice example of it. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, the temple was God's house. When Solomon dedicated the temple, the Shekinah glory, the cloud of glory came down and filled up the house. 
that was where God chose to make his presence known. It was, as if you would, his house. And yet, that was not the only way that a house for God was described in the Old Testament. God's people were also described as a house. Numbers 12, 7, God is comparing Moses and some false prophets that have come up. They're trying to take leadership over God's people. He says this, he says, Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Now, God's not just talking about what Moses did in the tabernacle. He's talking about his leadership over God's people, being his mouthpiece, the, the shepherd of his flock. That is Moses being a caretaker in God's house. So while both of those meanings for that word oikos could be uh, substantiated from the Old Testament, it's clear what Paul has in mind here is the idea of a household or a family. You can see that really clearly just by looking a little earlier in the chapter. Uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Here he's laying out what an elder or a leader in the church is supposed to be. And this is what he says. He says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? See, right, right there in those verses, it shows household and church go hand in hand. So Paul here is using the analogy of a family to say this is what God's people are and it's how they are to behave. Now, you know this, that you don't really know a family until you get to a family gathering. You know this, right? Um, maybe over Labor Day you're going to have a family gathering and you'll be with some aunts and uncles or brothers and sisters that are a little odd and the dynamic changes when they're, you're all in the room together, right? You love them, but it's just a little different. Um, Precious and I went through this when we got married. Um, first Christmas after we got married, she came to our, the Christmas for the first time on my side of the family. Now, the way my family celebrates Christmas is a little more uh, Central American than the way that, uh, that her family does. Uh, we, we do something called Noche Buena. Um, and the idea is that instead of celebrating Sunday morning, you know, bouncing down the steps bright and early to see what Santa left under the tree. No, instead, the operative word for Noche Buena is late, late, and later. Um, so you arrive at, in this case, we arrived at my uncle's house at 9.30, 10 o'clock or so. And then you had dinner sometime around 11. And uh, you don't start cracking over open presents until midnight. And uh, let me tell you, opening presents is a lot more fun when you're all so tired that you're getting punchy and you're just laughing and having a huge old time and you don't finish up. You certainly don't go home before 2 a.m., right? Uh, and that was made doubly fun because her family does the traditional kind of the Christmas morning uh, tradition where they wake up and have breakfast together at 6 a.m. Uh, so, you know, we went from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. and it was, there was a lot of coffee drink that morning. Uh, but, you know, you, you really don't know a family until you've been to a family gathering, right? Paul here describes what the church is going to be like. What is it? Well, it's God's family. It's God's family who's gathered for worship. The second image that he uses is that of an assembly. In verse 15, he says, uh, the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That word for church, ecclesia, is uh, what's used to describe an assembly or a gathering of people. Again, Old Testament roots. God's people gathered a lot in the Old Testament. 
They gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai to hear God speak through the flames and the cloud. They gathered when the temple was being dedicated. They gathered for the feast days. They gathered for the Day of Atonement. They are a gathering people. Fundamental to what it means to be a church is a regular gathering of people that are there to worship God. That second phrase there, the church of the living God, uh, it tells us that this is about worship. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, that the living God was put up against the dead idols. Your idols couldn't save you. They, they, they couldn't speak back to you. They, they couldn't intervene. But the living God, on the other hand, he speaks. The living God, he, he hears our prayers and he intervenes. These images are blending together for, with Paul to say, who are we as a church? We are God's family gathered up to worship. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and uh, maybe some of what we're, what's happening this morning is a little odd. And, uh, first off, let me say, I'm, I'm glad you're here, if so. Um, it's a brave thing to come to a place as foreign as a, a church if you're not yourself a believer. And one of the things that sometimes people who aren't Christians struggle to understand is why is it we would spend the time, commit to gathering every Sunday to read from a, a book that's 2,000 plus years old and to get to know people that are so different from each other. Why, why would you go through all that trouble? I mean, maybe there's some social benefits to it. Uh, lots of reasons people can come up with. But I hope you understand, uh, after gathering with us today, we think this is actually the way God intended us to be. I mean, deep down, don't you think that you're actually made to be a part of something bigger than yourself? I mean, don't you feel called towards particular causes or, or maybe even towards a political party because it gives you a sense that you're one of many moving the same direction? Well, God's, according to the Bible, God's actually made us to gather together and worship. And there's something that can only be satisfied deep within us when we do that very thing. One of the reasons that we so joyfully gather, at least we hope we are, it's because we're getting something in worship with other people, believing in the same God, worshiping the same way, that we're unable to get on our own. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are the same accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ, are in their heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to come with unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Brothers and sisters, those who call yourselves Christians, I hope you come to church, not just because you like a form of certain songs or not just because you, you like a certain building. I hope you're coming to gather with your church family to worship. I mean, think about what it means that we are family to each other. It means that there's going to be lots of differences between us. I mean, your family, your earthly families probably have a, a good bit of difference in the, the people represented at your family gatherings. See, even more so for God's church. You'll sit next to people coming from very different walks of life. 
Maybe you'll be in a small group with someone that's from a different generation than you are, or different socioeconomic background than you are, someone who had very different understandings of what you do in this world. I mean, the beautiful part about the church is we have something in common that transcends all those things. We're related to each other because we have the same Heavenly Father, because we have His Spirit dwelling inside us. And in one sense, we have more in common with each other than someone who likes all the same things we do, is the same age as we are, and lives in the same place. If we are in Christ together, that means we are truly united. Let's recognize also as God's family, that's going to mean that there are certain expectations for how we live. Every family has its rules. Every household has certain things, whether it's whether you wear shoes in the house or not, or whether you put the dishes in the sink, or whether you leave them for someone else to pick up. We all have our own individual rules. God's household is no different. He's laid out for us that his family is to operate a certain way. Really, the whole book of 1 Timothy lays out what that is, everything from how you manage your family, uh, how you manage your husband and wife relationships, to how you keep yourself pure and living in a hostile world. Uh, one section that I think would be worth us just reading is chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, because it so, covers so much relational ground. It says, Do not rebuke, rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, a younger man as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. You see how all these different relationships are within the context of God's family. If you're here this morning and you're single, I hope you feel like this is your church family. I hope you feel like you belong and that you're wanted. I want you to know that you're bringing something to our church family that would not be here if you weren't here. If you're here and you've got a big family local to the area, I'm glad you're here. I think there's a temptation to spend a lot of time with our earthly families, sometimes even to the expense of our church families. I wonder if you might consider how you're using your time and whether you're showing your allegiance to Christ in the way you use your relationships here in the church. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a member of a local church. And let me just say, I understand, especially when you're relocating, we're going through transitions. It's wise to take a time to really get to know a church before you commit. But if you're not a member of a local church, and frankly, there's not a great reason why other than you haven't gotten around to it. Friend, let me just point out that this passage of Scripture very clearly assumes you will be part of a local church family. There's no such thing in the Bible as a Christian off there on their own under the tree by themselves. It's a dangerous place to be outside of the authority of uh, leaders of the church, away from the fellowship and accountability of your brothers and sisters that are encouraged and exhorted to raise you up and to bear your burdens with you. Now, as I say that, I know that the mistrust of the institutional church is at an all-time high at the moment, and for some kind of valid reasons. I mean, if you've been paying attention to the news What's been happening in the Catholic Church, even evangelical churches here in the Midwest, that should cause us to really ask some tough questions. But friends, if, if we take seriously that God's word is sufficient for the ordering of his church and to protect his people, then we've got to realize that when 
the qualifications laid out for church leaders are not followed, there will be consequences. That's not to say that even churches with a proper polity and who really rigorously vet their leaders won't have problems. But it is to say that we ought to be especially careful to make sure that we are paying attention to where God's word tells us what should mark the leaders in his church. I say that because coming up in November, Lord willing, we will have uh, two nominees for you to uh, consider to be installed as elders. Uh, it's a really important step for our church family. It's one that I've intentionally been slow about because I want us as a church to really come to grips with what it means to ha install someone for this sort of service within the church and for us to really take the time to, to pray and consider what God's word says on the matter. So I'm actually going to give you some homework if you're a member of College Park Castleton, I want you to read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And between now and November, we're going to be talking more about this, but I want you to be studying on your own this list of qualifications for the elder. My hope is when we get to the point where I can uh, publicly name the nominees, that you will be directed by Scripture what you should be looking for. Now, I wish I had time for us to go through all of it right now. I don't, but I'm going to give you three kind of main uh, keys to this section that in your own study I hope will be helpful for you. So the first is realize that the list of qualifications here is less about gifting and more about character. It's less about gifting and more about character. As you go through the list, you'll see things on there like not a drunkard, uh, gentle, uh, someone who's hospitable. Now, those are the types of character virtues that we would hope all Christians who are mature in Christ would have. It's more about character than gifting. Now, there are a few of those uh, qualities that are themselves gifts, so specifically the elder has to be able to teach. But the vast majority of them are things that should be true of all mature Christians. Second, it's this list will insist on maturity, and yet it does not insist on perfection. It is very possible for us to set up a standard so high that only Jesus himself could get over it. Now, the, this does not call for a sinless man that must be demanded for the office, but it calls for someone when sin is pointed out in their life that repents and truly changes in their walk with God, that with increasing uh, visible holiness present in their life. Third, the verses we read earlier, verses 4 through 6, notice the analogy from the home to how they handle affairs in the church. We are called to think and ask questions about how they handle their family. And as you're thinking about whether you would vote positively or not for one of these men, I, I want you to ask, do you think that they are trustworthy to handle their own family? And if so, might they be trustworthy to handle God's church. Again, there's a lot more that's going to be said about that in the weeks ahead. We will spend more time explicitly teaching about these qualifications and, and other matters related to installing elders. All right, we, we just saw that what is a church? Well, a church is God's family that's gathered for worship. Secondly, what is a church supposed to be about? Well, it's supposed to be about holding up and holding out the gospel. Maybe you're familiar with that movie, which is now long in the past, uh, The Lion King. Um, there's that scene at the beginning with that uh, Elton John song, The Circle of Life, blaring. 
uh, where all the animals are gathered under a pride rock, and uh, the, the new prince lion has been born, Simba. And they've all come to pay respect for his birth. And so the, the old monkey or whatever he is, he, he takes the, the little cub and he goes to the edge of the rock and then he thrusts him up and holds him up and so everyone can see the little lion cub, right? A similar sort of analogy Paul is using to describe how it is we should think of ourselves as the church. We are a support structure for the gospel, he uses two architecture uh, terms that are designed to communicate this. Uh, first is in verse 15, uh, uh, the, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, this church was in Ephesus, and in Ephesus there was an incredible temple to the goddess Diana. You might remember in Acts, the turmoil of those who made idols when the gospel started being preached there. They were worried that it would turn people away from their goddess. Well, it's said that as you were walking up to ancient Ephesus, that before you could see the actual city, that you would see the light gleaming off the top of the temple of Diana. Because sitting atop these giant, gorgeous columns was a slab of marble that would reflect the light miles and miles away from the city. So even before you could see the city, you could see the light of the temple. It's not hard to imagine that Paul is using this image in the city where this church is located to say, you, my friends, you, this church, your job is to hold up the glory and hold out the glory of the gospel of Jesus. What does he mean by holding up? Well, he means to, you support the gospel and the message of the gospel. Certainly there's an application there related to our finances and how we serve. But I think the primary one goes back to the how you ought to obey your, uh, how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God. It's do we have lives that are consistent with the message we preach? Or do we live in such a way that the message we preach is actually undermined? History's full of examples of Christians who say one thing and do another and who lose a hearing as a result. Not only, though, are we supposed to hold up, live consistently with the gospel, we're also supposed to hold it out, that is, present it to a watching world. This is a call to evangelize, for churches to be proclaimers of the good news of Jesus. As a preacher, my job is not done until I have expressly held out the gospel of Jesus for anyone who cares to listen. I have a pastor friend that was visiting uh, in a, a different city, and he's a runner, so he was out on the uh, pathways running, and he said he was amazed. He was stopped twice in his run, uh, very, very kindly, but stopped twice by two different people that were members of the same church, both evangelizing to him. Now, they never met him. They didn't know he was a pastor. You know, they were just out doing their thing. And he said, like, I've never been to that church. I don't know anyone from it, but I know one thing. That is a place where people take seriously their call to hold out the gospel of Jesus. Paul's telling us that we, as a church, our function is to be one of many pillars holding up the gospel, supporting it, pushing it forward as we're able with our resources and service, and faithfully proclaiming it holding it out to anyone that would listen. Well, what is the gospel message he has in mind? Well, verse 16 shows us. 
This is great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And the way Paul use it, uses that word mystery, it, it's not referring to something that's unknowable. Like, the Bible's so hard to understand. It's a mystery. No, that's not what he's, he's getting at. When, when Paul says mystery, he means something in the past that formerly was unknown, which has now been revealed. What is it he's talking about? Well, the mystery of godliness is the, the content of that hymn, which is really just the gospel in skeleton form. It's a beautiful hymn, probably one of the earliest ones we have from the ancient church. Um, its main idea is very obvious. The specifics of how it's broken down is not so much. So it could be that it's meant to be interpreted with uh, three sections with two lines each. So he was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the spirit would be one line and then seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations, that'd be another line, etc. Or it could be that it's two sections with three verses each. Um, honestly, I, I think that the two sections with three verses each makes most sense. If that were the case, then the first three verses would talk about how Jesus was revealed in the spiritual realm and his coming to this earth and his ministry here on earth. And the second section would be about how this earth itself saw him and responded to him in the preaching of the gospel. Regardless of what, which way you take it, it's really not uh, hard to understand the, basic of, the basics of the message. It, it's that Jesus came to this earth. He came on a mission, and he was witnessed both by heaven and earth to accomplish that mission. I mean, think of the good news of the gospel that we get to hold up and hold out. You know, God did not have to show himself to any of his creations, and yet he chose to show himself to those humans that he made. Not only to show himself, to have relationship with them, even as they rebelled against him and created this incredible gulf between them and their creator. That gulf would never have been traversed. We would we're not do anything from God except for his wrath, if not for the fact that he showed us even more grace, sending his son into this earth. He came down from heaven. Angels watched the whole thing happen as he took on flesh. As he walked among us, as he walked all the way to the cross to, to die as a criminal, to bridge that gulf, to bring us back to God by dealing with our sins once and for all. After he rose from the dead, people from all over the world, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, they saw and heard the good news of what he had done, and they believed in him, and they were transformed as a result. Friends, you realize we get to be the support and the heralds of that good news. We get to hold up and hold out the gospel. Do you think of yourself that way? Maybe you're in the office. You're known as a Christian. People are watching the way you live. And maybe it's only once in every, every once in a blue moon, but you have an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus. Do you know in that moment you are holding up and holding out the gospel? Parents, you've got kids at home, or maybe the kids are grown now. You've been faithfully living as a Christian for as long as they can remember. You're even here on church on Sunday. I, I want you to know that that has not gone unnoticed. Your kids pay careful attention to your life. And maybe it's just a conversation you had years ago, or maybe it's one you had this week. You are acting as uh, God's means of holding up and holding out the gospel 
to your kids. We as a church need to take this seriously ourselves. We, we can be about a lot of things within the community. There are incredible opportunities for us to show love to our community and do great good in the community. But if we stop holding up the good news of the gospel and stop holding it out to our neighbors, friends, our purpose as a church, we cease to, to meet that purpose. There's no reason for us to be here. Friends, we are support structures. We're not the only support structure. I mean, maybe you're feeling the weight a little too much at this moment. Um, it doesn't say we are the only pillar. We're one of many pillars. There are the local churches all over the world, even down the street at East 91st Street, even in Greenwood this morning and launching into their building. And yet the reason God has us here is to hold up and hold out the gospel. It's a sad thing for churches to be closing down in Quebec. It's not the only place that's happening. There are lots of churches closing down all over the place. Sad thing to see the gospel witness decrease and interest in religion decrease. But it's not always that, that's not always the story. Uh, just recently, I got, had the privilege of writing you as a congregation a letter. Uh, I termed it a birthday letter because it was one year since we were launched out from uh, College Park in Carmel uh, to be a congregation here in Castleton. We need to recognize that we are so incredibly blessed. We stand on the shoulders of giants in multiple ways. All right, the church that sent us out is an incredible legacy of, of faith and faithfulness to this task of holding up and holding out the gospel. They've been so generous to us, set us up so well. We also need to realize that there used to be a church that, that worshipped right here in this same building. We actually have a history wall up that if you haven't gone and visited, you should. It chronicles their journey of doing this very thing, holding up and holding out the gospel. And we should be very grateful for that, that we get to continue that legacy here. And to realize that no church is guaranteed to live on forever. If Jesus delays his return, there will likely come a day when this church will cease to be. That's just the reality. Almost no churches last forever. The question is, will we have been faithful to being who God has called us to be as a church and to be about what he's called us to be about as a church? When the story is finished of College Park Castleton, will we be, will we be known as God's family that gathered for worship Sunday after Sunday, holding up and holding out the gospel? Or might we have gotten sidetracked in one of many other good things? None of us know the future, but I pray we as a congregation would be resolved in our hearts. We may do a lot of other things wrong, but let's get this one right. Let's be who God's made us to be. Let's gather as his family to worship and let's hold up and hold out the gospel every single Sunday that he gives us. It's a beautiful thing, the family of God gathered to worship him alone. I hope you're encouraged by coming to worship. There, there's something you get here you can't get anywhere else. I hope you realize what an impact you're making, just being a part of this church. We're here to do this together. Let's be faithful to that calling. Let's pray.